So as Rabbi Lizzie mentioned earlier, ooh, I am hot. <laughs> on the mic. I'm hot on the mic. <laughs> so as Rabbi Lizzie mentioned, this past Sunday I had the privilege of speaking just outside of this building in support of our siblings at Second Unitarian. And I was proud to be supporting a community that has been working against the prevailing rhetoric that religious freedom and our progressive values stand in opposition to one another, as hmm. Reverend Jason mentioned just a few moments ago. Rather, the free practice of our religion, in their case, Unitarian Universalism, and in our case, Judaism in this country, demands, demands progress. To be a Jew, living out the values of our tradition, necessitates building a society where people are given the essential human rights of food and of shelter and of safety and of dignity and of education and of health care, including as the sign outside that door advocates for access to abortion. Many of these progressive values, I said this past Sunday, have deep roots in our tradition. We're not, we're not just like making them up. Like we actually, we actually draw them from our tradition. The rabbis first talked about the right of a person to end a pregnancy particularly when the livelihood or life of the parent was in danger nearly 2,000 years ago. This is, a, this is a very old conversation. Now, these same rabbis also talked about labor rights and loan forgiveness and building robust welfare systems, and they talked about access to health care and agency and making medical decisions. They spoke on the dignity that should be afforded to all people, but especially the most vulnerable. But more than the content of their conversations, what the rabbis truly gave us as progressive moderns is a tradition that empowers us to make change, even when what we're changing is the tradition itself. One of the first texts that I studied as a student from the Talmud, which is this compendium of rabbinic conversations that serves as the very foundation of the Judaism we practice today, the rabbis I keep referring to who are talking 2,000 years ago are the rabbis of the Talmud. One of the first texts I studied from this compendium is the case of the Ben Sorer Umare, often translated as the wayward and rebellious son. This is actually one of 74 mitzvot, one of 74 laws found in this week's Torah portion, among laws about prisoners of war, and inheritance and burial and dignity of the dead, returning lost objects, and yes, even building guardrails on a rooftop so people don't fall off of them. It goes something like this. If there is a wayward and rebellious son who does not obey his parents, and they chasten him, but he does not listen, then his parents shall bring him before the elders of the city and say, this son of ours is wayward and rebellious. He does not obey us, he is a glutton and a drunk, to which the elders will respond by pelting him to death with stones. <laughs> I sense behind the laughter some cringing, because this is one of those moments in the Torah that makes me cringe just a little bit. Like, like this, this is our sacred tradition? Like, this is part of our inheritance? This seems so anathema to the Judaism that we know and love, which tempers justice with compassion and provides the mechanisms for restitution and forgiveness. Yet this is precisely the reason that most students who are opening up the Talmud for the first time begin with this text, because two millennia ago, those same rabbis were also similarly disturbed. They also looked at this text from the Torah and said, 
this doesn't feel right. Something about this doesn't sit right with me. And so they began to ask some questions. They begin with the word son. Clearly, they say, we can rule out anybody who does not identify as a male. And because it's a son, we must be talking about a minor, but not someone so young that they can't understand what they're doing. Then we must be considering, they think, a child who has started but not completed puberty after extensive conversation about the parameters of puberty, as like many paragraphs, the rabbis conclude that this must specifically refer to the time that one begins to grow body hair, which according to them is about a period of three months. So a son, we're still in the word son here, a son is a male child above the age of majority who has started but not yet completed puberty during the three months that they begin to grow body hair. Check. Great. Okay. Awesome. But what makes him wayward and rebellious? Well, the parents later call him a glutton and a drunk. So when we think of someone who is wayward and rebellious, we must be talking about a son, again, who has started puberty, not completed puberty during the three months where they're growing body hair, who consumes a large amount of meat and of wine in one sitting. How large? The rabbis argue about that for a while. I won't bore you with that part of the conversation. Yet, however, this large amount of meat and wine they consume certainly doesn't count if that he's doing this during like a celebratory period, like a holiday or a wedding or birthday or some time when you like consider it very normal to eat a lot of meat and wine. It must be during like a not so celebratory occasion. And if he ate meat but didn't drink wine, and he drank wine but didn't eat meat, that doesn't count either. We also have to consider where he got the meat and wine. Well, it only really qualifies as wayward and rebellious if he steals these things, right? That's not so wayward or rebellious if he gives you a lot of meat and wine. It's a child, after all. They're going to eat what you put in front of them, right? So it only counts if he steals it. But from whom? His parents? Okay, that's pretty wayward and rebellious. But if he eats it on his parents' property, he probably is doing it in hiding because he's afraid he's going to get caught. So he probably won't do a transgression again. So he must have stolen it from his parents and then eaten on somebody else's property. But what if he stole it from somebody else and ate on their No, it doesn't count. That doesn't count either. It has to be from his parents, and he takes it off their property, and he eats it there, because that shows clear, wayward, and rebellion. Well, what about the parents? Well, if one parent thinks that he should be punished and the other parent does not, that clearly doesn't qualify. And because the parents say that the son doesn't listen to the word in Hebrew is kolenu, our voice, that implies that they speak with one voice. They're speaking the same opinion. And the rabbis are like, no, not even just the same opinion. They must sound identical. (laughs) And clearly, if they sound identical, they must also look identical. (laughs) I mean, you laugh about it, but we 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 all know couples like that. There's a few of them out there. However, if they don't look identical and they don't sound identical, even if they condemn their son, it doesn't count. And so the rabbis continue adding qualification after qualification. I mean, this is is pages of the Talmud. Until Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai throws his hands in the air and says, oh my God, you guys. (laughs) At this point, there never was, nor could there ever be, a Ben Sorer Moray. At this point, one rabbi unhelpfully pipes in from the side, I think I saw a grave of one somewhere once, maybe. (laughs) What I imagine actually happened in that moment is that all the other rabbis in the room look at Rav Shimon Bar Yochai and say, duh, 
Like, that's the whole point of what we're doing. We are not given to our tradition, the Talmud says. Our tradition is given to us. And we are empowered to help it grow as we grow in our own understanding of the world, to redirect it as we are directed by our moral compass, and to change it as we are changed. I believe that this is the greatest gift given to us by the rabbis, that the Judaism we practice today is an evolving, interpretive tradition. We are not fundamentalists. How could we be? Let's say that again. We are not <laughs> fundamentalists. We practice an evolving, interpretive tradition. History is not kind to rigidity or an unwillingness to change. The ability to adapt our tradition to new challenges and opportunities has allowed us to survive those 2,000 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, an event that could have easily made us a very small footnote <laughs> in the story of humankind. The same vision of a better future that underlies our progressive values today also birthed a hope and a resilience that has sustained our people through some of the darkest moments of the past few centuries. And I know that it will continue to bear us through whatever, whatever lies ahead. I think this is one of the primary messages of this season, this month of Elul that Rabbi Lizzie mentioned earlier. The hope the belief that things can change for the better, and the understanding that it is within our power to make that change, to make it happen. In a very broken world that we live in now, I think it is easy and perhaps a little tempting to believe that things are just the way they are because it abrogates us from responsibility and it allows us to shrink into the convenient falsehood that we are too small or too powerless to do anything of significance. Which is precisely why the month of Elul, these 29 days leading up to Rosh Hashanah and the new year, don't begin with the big stuff, all the things around the world that we want to change, but it begins with the self. It begins with us. It is a reminder that we, just like our tradition, are able to adapt and to change and to grow. How many of us have allowed ourselves to become trapped by the narrative that things are just too broken to fix? There are things about us just too rigid to bend. There are things about us just too unlovable to be treated with the care and compassion that each of us deserves. This is what teshuva is about. To turn back. Literally, the word means to turn back and to look at ourselves to imagine what a different story would sound like if only we would tell it. Mm. One in which we have the power to repair what we have broken, and we have the power to forgive those who have hurt us, and we have the power to step into a happier and more courageous and more fulfilled self that has always existed, has mm. always existed within you, but was hidden by the lie that you could never become that person. Mm. What if we believed that everything could be changed, including ourselves? So I'm going to be speaking on this more during Rosh Hashanah. So this is a, a little preview of what I'll be talking about. But I want to share some of what has been on my heart and mind this season. So my year started with the decision to get divorced. 
a really difficult and very exhausting and very heartbreaking process that was only finalized a few months ago. The end of my marriage made me feel like a failure. And I wondered if I was inherently unlovable. And I started to look at parts of myself that were broken and suspect that they could and would never be fixed. Maybe this is just who I am. Maybe this is just the way things are. But I've learned that that is the lie of divorce. And it is the same lie told to us by being rejected from college, or being fired from a job, or by not meeting your goal weight, or by hearing the embryo didn't take, or by receiving the call that the loan wasn't approved, or by walking away from yet another disagreement with your mother, or another fight with your partner, or another argument with your child, or by picking up the bottle again, or by lighting up another cigarette, even though you said you'd quit, but you're at your wit's end, and it's just too much to deal with right now. We try, and we fail, and we fail again, and we take risks that don't pay off, and we make decisions, we make decisions to end things that weren't supposed to end, and we fall back into habits that we said we'd quit, even if we visit them year after year after year. But where we might begin to tell a story that continues indefinitely, unchanging into the future, a story that says, this is just who I am, and this is just the way things are. What can I do to change it? Our tradition reminds us that we have the power to rewrite that narrative. It's not going to look like the story we planned. This is certainly not the story I planned when I stood under the chuppah a couple years ago. But it can be a happier story. And it can be a story about our resilience and our courage and our ability to change. It can be a story that surrounds us with people who love us when we struggle and when we succeed. It can be a story that upholds our dignity and celebrates our worth. This is our sacred inheritance. This is teshuva that turning back that we do during this time of year. It is the imagination to dream of what a better future might look like, the ability to tell a new story that rewrites the narrative of our lives and the will to bring it into being. Those tools for change are already in your hands. They've always been there. They've always been there. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Oh. Yeah, Rabbi Stephen. We're going to stand. Turn to page 32.